0: Hi, I'm David Newsome, and this is Coffee Talk.
1: Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by guitar professor David Newsome. David's an acclaimed educator and performer of both jazz and classical guitar, and he's taught at Berkeley for over 30 years. He's played and done clinics with folks like Jim Hall, Clark Terry, Bucky Pizzarelli, and Phil Wilson, and was at one time the artistic director of the Boston Classical Guitar Society. Professor Newsom talks about really going deep into understanding the concepts behind the notes. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with David Newsom.
2: Hi everyone, I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department. Welcome to another Coffee Talk all of us here at berkeley college of music we've got cheryl bailey here as usual hey cheryl hey everybody coffee cheers and our senior coordinator ian steed is also here hey ian hey all and today our guest is professor david Newsom. hey david hey everyone <laughs> Nice mug. Yeah. I
0: I can't remember where I got this, but
2: it's good. (laughs) We have our Guitar Department coffee mugs for all of you who are listening. Um, Today, this is the first Coffee Talk I'm doing from the Guitar Department office on Boylston Street, and Cheryl is also in the office today. So we're getting ready. We're getting ready to be back on campus more often. It's a good feeling. Um, And David, uh, welcome to to the show, um, to being on Coffee Talk. But you know, you're probably really getting ready to come
0: back. Well, oh, I've been back since January. I was uh, I started teaching uh, one day on campus, starting in January, and then uh, this week I was back uh, for the twelve week for mm-hmm. for a full day as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, how it's many different, you, but how many how years
2: many have you years? been at Berkeley? Do you can you pull it up in your mind?
0: Yeah, it's a lot. It's like thirty two now. <laughs> Started yeah. yeah, in in nineteen eighty nine.
2: Yeah. So you've seen a lot of changes that you'll talk about, I'm sure, as we go through this hang. Um Definitely. the first thing everybody wants to know is um do you drink coffee and how do you take it?
0: Uh I did drink a lot of coffee in college. Um but then I I became a tea drinker. Mm-hmm. So
2: it's I okay do a, yeah. I, I do
0: have a coffee story though, so you, you 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 all know that my daughter uh, during uh during the lockdown she moved uh, she went up to maine to kind of escape she was living in massachusetts uh, moved up to owls head maine to stay in her mom's cottage and ended up buying the owls head general store um, talk about a, a change of career in the middle of its pandemic so very proud of her but uh, I will say that there's a wonderful uh, coffee shop in Rockland, Maine. The Rock City Coffee. It's right on uh, Main Street in Rockland, Maine. It's a great co-op, and they have a special Owls Head blend designed specifically for the Owls Head General Store. So I gr- I ground these up for my wife. She's a big coffee drinker. So, but. Yeah. So you can order it online or when you're up in the mid-coast Maine on summer vacation, you can stop at the Owl's Head store and pick up the, their special blend. It's a dark blend and uh, it's it's really great.
2: That's really cool. I, I love that story about your daughter. It's one of my favorite things that happened in the pandemic.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Me too. I mean, it's just so many th- you know stories about you know, hardship and everything. And she, you know, just, she's, she was 26 at the time and she had a lot of experience. She'd been working in restaurants since she was 16, you know? And uh, and just, she she saw this store that had been empty for about three and a half, four years, which was kind of the lifeblood of this little town. The town itself, uh, the full-time residents are 1600. So it's this mm-hmm. tiny little town. It's just a fishing town on the coast of Maine, you know? and. And the town was kind of, you know, longing for the general store because that was their their hub, their community center, you know. And uh, so she talked to her mom about it and she was saying how, you know, it's such a shame that, you know, the stores close and, you know, I wish somebody would take it over. It really needs somebody that can work hard and knows the business. And she paused and said, wait a minute, is that me? <laughs> And her mom said, yeah, it is you. So she did it. She went for it and she bought it and she completely renovated it. And they've been open since October and they're doing great. And now she's gearing up for the big summer rush she had, you know, since October to kind of learn the ins and outs of running the business. And now it's going to be, you know, tourist season where the town is going to go from like 1600 to 16,000, you know?
2: <laughs> wow. I mean, I think that's really interesting because, so many of the students had to learn to adapt and that's such a great story of of someone who
0: we all did really I mean,
2: adapted yeah I and mean, I was thinking that I mean you've been here for 30 plus years and then you had to change everything about the way you taught really in about a week we had a you know about a turnaround time of about a week and right. and I'm wondering like you know is there something specific you can put your finger on now that you feel like you learned from that or something that maybe had prepared you to do that. That would be well. Helpful. I
0: mean, I, I was fortunate that I've been doing uh, Berkeley Online since about t- uh, 2014. Mm-hmm. I designed a course I think in the end of 2013 that mm-hmm. that ran in uh, in the spring term of 2014. So mm-hmm. I had that online experience teaching privately, as well as teaching the course that I designed. You know. Uh, So that definitely helped a lot, but there was still a lot of adjustments in terms of, uh, you know, teaching a live class, you know, because the online school, it's all pre-recorded. And so, you know, I had, you know, weekly meetings, but it was not actually, you know, teaching an entire course online and especially um, teaching, you know, labs and ensembles. That was the biggest adjustment, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wish I had more, you know preparation in that end of things in terms of recording and and um, you know video and sound editing and things like that. So I mean I've learned some of that over the, over the you know the last 14 months, but I think that would have definitely helped prepare me more for that quick adjustment that we made last March, you know
2: Yeah. yeah, I mean, but there over the years, you've written so much curriculum, you've worked with so many different students you've you really span quite a few styles in your teaching so the even just that ability to transition in the old way of doing things quote unquote must have helped you
0: kind of yeah i mean that. i think that's you know one of the benefits of being old and <laughs> <laughs> having taught as many students as i have you know but yeah no I've, i you know i i was mentioning to to uh, Cheryl earlier that i teach a course at the, at the college called the private studio teacher where we talk about teaching, you know, and I feel like, you know, after 30 plus years, I, I have a little bit of knowledge and experience about the subject. So uh, certainly, you know, you, you use that all the time when teaching in every situation. I still find that I really try to work hard at perfecting the, you know, the art of teaching, you know, that it's uh i think a lot of people that take that course just think like oh yeah i'll just do it and it's like no 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 (laughs) just because you might be a monster player and a really good person doesn't necessarily mean that that's all going to translate to being a good teacher so um you know and in some ways i reflect back on you know the the early days that i did taught and think wow man It couldn't have been that good for students, you know, and uh, I mean, I'll I'll reconnect with students and, and, you know, get positive feedback, but I still feel like, you know, the, the, the place where I'm at as a teacher now is so far beyond where it was when I started back then, you know, so, but, you know, I really try to keep working on, on that craft of, of improving teaching every single lesson that I teach.
3: David, don't you think that's so similar to our, how we develop as players too? Because over the years, you get presented with students with so many different perspectives, and not no one learns the same way, and so you have to kind of go through so many possibilities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, and that's one area where you can draw analogies, you know, like, okay, you work really hard in this way to be a better player. uh, Now just apply that to teaching, you know. And the other thing that I tell um, the students and the thing that I think about all the time is that I've studied with some of the best teachers in the world, you know, so I can draw an incredible amount of information and knowledge from their approach and the way that they taught and the way that maybe they dealt with my struggles, you know. Um, You know, I had an opportunity um, through a grant at Berkeley to study with Grisha Goryachev and study flamenco before I wrote the the flamenco course. And I was blown away by, you know, just, you know, the fact that he's probably one of the best flamenco players on the planet, but also what an incredible teacher he was, you know. And when I, you know, reached points where I was struggling, how he would always be able to kind of find a way in to explain it, you know. In a different way, but a way that made sense, you know. And so I, I really admired, you know, him and, you know, having studied with Bill Levitt and Charlie Bonakis and, you know, some of the best, you know, educators, you know, that that walked the face of the earth. So I mean, I definitely use that as a inspiration as well as just a model for how I could become a better teacher as well.
2: I think what's interesting about what you just said is about how When you're a student and you really are thinking about the way someone is teaching you, you almost listen to them differently because a lot of people think, oh, I've taken lessons so I could teach lessons. But are you really, really thinking about the way that someone breaks something down and explains it to you?
0: Right, right. And that's actually the first assignment in that course is to write about your experiences and then break down, you know, why those teachers were so successful? What what about their approach was the thing that connected or inspired you as a student? Because th- it's at that moment within the course where we start to turn the tables, like, okay, you were a student, now you're going to become a teacher, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, turning it around like that, like, how did you respond? But then how would you, you know, initiate those types of strategies yourself as, a, as an educator?
2: I think that's a really interesting thing, like for all the students who are listening, if you went into your next class or your next lesson and you approached it like part of my goal here is to think about the way this person is showing me this information and then how would I be able to, could I go and then break it down for someone else? It will make you a different student. It will make you a better student if Mm -hmm. you have to then explain the way that you do things.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, that's a big part of the class, not just doing the teaching, but really understanding everything from, you know, the lesson plan to the materials that you develop. And and then analyzing it after it's done, you know, the kind of Monday morning quarterback approach to like, how did this really go, you know?
2: (laughs) Right. And all the things you take for granted. So, you know, I followed in your footsteps, David, as a faculty member at National Guitar Workshop because you were there for many years, and then I, I came after. And one of the things I did was I taught some of the intern program, which is similar to your class that you're talking about, where mm-hmm. you're teaching exactly. people to teach. And so the first day, um, I had a student sit down in the chair, and another student uh, gave that person a guitar, and I said, you have to show them how to hold it, but you can't touch them, because in so many of the classrooms, you can't touch the students. You can't just move their arms around. So they can only do what you tell them. And you think, how hard is it, you know, to hold a guitar and people are upside down. Their hands are like all turned around They're, you know, and then you say, wait, wait. (laughs) And then the next thing is, okay, we're going to talk about a major scale, the definition of a major scale. And everybody can only repeat back to you what you say. And then, you know, how do you explain that? Right. Mm -hmm. How do you, and then by, you know, you end up using terms that you haven't defined. You end up saying things that aren't clear. And then you realize Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Like in the beginning, you almost have to script yourself and then it becomes natural. Right.
0: (laughs) Well, I do a thing in, in the class where they have the first lesson that they have to teach is on like an everyday activity. So I'll sign them. You have to teach a lesson on how to brush your teeth or how to iron a shirt or, you know, how to make a sandwich, you know? And, and again, it's, things that you don't think about. But then you have to kind of design a plan and have the language to communicate it to somebody who's never done that before. Again, the assumption being that this person has never brushed their teeth before. So you have to teach them how to do every stroke, every (laughs) movement, every action is going to be the way that you teach it.
2: Yeah, that's really amazing. That's great. I I really, you know, hopefully everyone takes that class. We can't require it, but it would would <laughs> definitely be helpful.
0: Yeah, Ian took it. He could he could talk to the class <laughs> and how 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 much it's influenced him and how well he brushes his teeth, I guess.
1: You know, I actually I I thought about that <clears throat> class a lot ever since I took it. It was really good. I mean, you think you know something. I mean, I mean, I'm sure everybody's been in this uh sort of experience where you have a whole, uh, you know, conception in your mind, you know, logically laid out and reasoned well. And you think of all the reasons why. And then when you start to say it, you realize, oh, my God, halfway through the sentence, you think, holy crap, I did. I'm using this one word way too often. And I am not (laughs) nearly as clear as I thought I was. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it's it's it was really good. I, I thought about that class a lot. I remember that that assignment, but I don't remember what I did. that's Mm -hmm. That's such a good exercise.
0: Yeah. It's funny when, um, Toki came in for his very first, uh, like week he sat in on that class and I made him do the assignment too. I can't remember what he did, but that was really, it was really great, you know, that he participated, but then, you know, to put him in that same place that everybody's in, it's, it doesn't matter, you know, how much experience you have. If you've never taught that lesson before, you still have to come up with a strategy for how you're going to, you know, teach it, you know, and it was, it was really interesting to hear, you know, how he approached things and just to watch the process, you know?
3: Yeah. I think it's especially interesting because any of these things are something you just take for granted, right? You're not analyzing them, but a lot of people are like that about their guitar playing, or students, they haven't gotten to that place where they really are aware of what they do. You know, for instance, if they have things going on with their technique that might be out of alignment or whatever, maybe that's the first time they even thought about that. Like, wow, okay, holding the guitar. Wait, do I even know Mm -hmm. how to hold the guitar, you know?
0: Right, right, and it's all encompassing, you know? And that's why I find, like, one of the areas where I've really changed a lot of my teaching is just asking more questions, you know? Not so much because... I don't think they know the answer. But it's important for me to hear how they, you know, answer it. And I'll ask them to explain it as if they were teaching it to somebody else as a way to really figure out if they truly get when they shake their head and said, Yeah, I get it. I want to hear them like explain it and process it and then be able to really do it before I'm convinced that they know that, uh, you know, they've understood the, the, the concept, you know, so
2: you know, to that point, I I think that as I became a better teacher, I definitely became a better player. There's no doubt, because when you have to break something down, then it, you think, well, how do I do that?
0: Right, or do am I doing it? that? A- you know, am start I do- questioning, yes. you know, am I really walking the walk or <laughs> am I just mm-hmm. telling everybody else the way to do things and then I'm ignoring my own deficiencies, you know?
2: Or with some things, I think, like, you know, David you and I both study classical guitar coming up and there are some hard and fast rules when you're starting about your technique because you don't want to hurt yourself. So you can never do certain things certain fingers plant on the strings and other ones don't at these times and you know I found myself later when I wanted to do things like play slide and do other things I would think oh you, you can't do that with your right hand you can't put this and then I thought well wait a minute can you, I mean, is it just like those training wheels that you had on so that you didn't cause an injury when you were 15? Like, well, what about 20 years later or a little while later? Like, maybe, maybe you just kind of assume that the same things are true. Maybe you have to update your own files in Mm -hmm. what's possible. And, um, I think that that's good. And and teaching helps because you're asking someone else to update their files. And so now you have to update your own, right?
0: Right. Yeah. And just to clarify, I didn't come up as a classical player. It was funny. Mm -hmm. I had this discussion with somebody uh, just yesterday. I mean, I grew up with like Jimi Hendrix and, Mm -hmm. you know, Johnny Winter and, you know, Mm -hmm. bands like that. And um, I was lucky I did when I started to get more serious about the guitar. I did study with a great guitarist from Atlanta named Bob Shaw, Mm -hmm. um, who was actually in the service band, uh, just like Larry Bayonne, you know. And uh, so he really got me kind of more centered in terms of both uh, my physical playing as well as just my understanding of kind of jazz and theory and you know harmony and things like that. So I was really lucky that he he really got me ready uh, and prepared to to enter as a Berkeley student. But I didn't really study start studying the actual classical guitar until like after my junior year at Berkeley. I mean, the curriculum at Berkeley at the time—talk about changes—was all pick style, you know. I mean, that was Bill Levitt's thing. It's pick style guitar, you know, kind of his like counter conservatory approach to developing a guitar department, you know. And uh, but he really placed an emphasis on learning classical repertoire. So I was playing all kinds of classical repertoire with the pick on on my my one seventy five. <laughs> Which is crazy to think about now, you know, but it really was a a great discipline in terms of, you know, applying that technique to really challenging repertoire and having to deal with all the mechanics and as well as the the musical considerations. Um, But I fell in love with the music itself. And that's what really, you know, spurred me to want to start studying the actual classical guitar and uh, and learning some of those techniques. So I, I was definitely a late bloomer when it came to studying classical, you know, and then I went on later and got my master's and had a chance to kind of focus in on, you know, really focus in on learning the classical guitar.
2: That's a great story. I, you know, when someone there's a, the kind of a myth maybe that it dispels too, you in, in a way that you assume that if someone is a great classical guitarist because of the demands of that style, you must have started really young. And I think it's really nice to hear that, you know, there's there's an element of just sort of falling in love with something and pursuing it that transcends that. And I, I, there are other examples of that, too, that would surprise people, I think, if they... Yeah, I was going to say, you know? I, I
0: think of a lot of the people that I people. know who I consider to be great mm-hmm. classical guitarists, and I don't consider myself in that category, but, but <laughs> other great classical guitarists... Um, A lot of them did start out on electric guitar, you know, and at some point make the switch. I mean, I think I remember sitting down at lunch with some of the guests that came to Berkeley and hearing stories of, you know, them starting out playing electric guitar as well, you know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So that um, takes us really nicely to a question we always ask, which is about Berkeley first days. So you were a student here. Oh, yeah, I've got a good story. Yeah, would you share one? with us?
0: Yeah, well, my story is really crazy. Um, so anyways, yeah, um, there was a, a gap between the time that I graduated and the time that I, I got hired, but I was still living in the area. So, and I was really good friends with Bill Levitt and Larry Bayo I had had the chance to study with both of them. And it was right when Larry kind of took over and became the chair. Um, at that time. So I would always just pop in, say hello, you know, stay in touch, you know. Uh, and for, I, I should tell my first day at Berkeley story first, because the the day that I came in and did my entrance aug- audition, Larry Bayonne did the uh, audition. And he's like sitting behind this desk, you know, with his big guitar and says, Where are you from, kid? And I said, Enfield, Connecticut. And he said, Oh, yeah, me too. And I thought he was joking. I thought he was just like, you know, <laughs> Trying to be a wise guy which of course he is but um but uh so it turns out we grew up in the same town you know so we i i felt like we had this instant kind of bond you know uh, and then i had a chance to study with him my last two years at berkeley and and then we stayed in touch after i graduated so um the first union contract was signed in 1986. And it was a three year contract. So in the fall of 1989, they renegotiated that contract and, uh, and they lowered the number of teaching hours that the, you know, that the teachers were required to teach. Um, so they realized they had more students than they had teachers that could teach. So uh, it was the first week of class, I got a call on Tuesday, interviewed with Ron Bentley on Wednesday and then started my first teaching day on Friday
2: (laughs) wow talking about jumping in yeah so there was
0: no like I think I'll develop this or you know (laughs) figure out this it was literally like okay here you go here's reading lab one reading lab two and these private lessons go (laughs) that's awesome fortunately the curriculum was kind of still the same as what I had taken as a student. So I knew that material. It was all Bill Levitt's material and the, and the classes and labs that I had taken when I was a student there. So, um, so that part was easy, you know, uh, to, uh, to at least know what to, to begin to teach and, you know, kind of what the expectations were. But yeah, it was just like a blur that first year or so, you know, just because it was like, oh, i'm on the faculty of berkeley you know i just had gone from like teaching national guitar summer workshop to basically getting home that summer and then basically walking in as a as a faculty member you know and it was a trip for me just because you know i'm now teaching next to the people that i had studied with for all those years you know and i remember mark french i don't you 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 probably don't know mark french but he was one of my teachers um And uh, he saw me in the hall and he was like, oh, yeah, I remember you. You were that guy that used to hide behind the music stand so I wouldn't call on you in class. I was like, yeah, that's pretty much me. I was like, oh, God, please don't call on me.
2: (laughs) So, Cheryl, were you a Berkeley student when David started teaching at Berkeley? Yeah, I was
3: here. Well, I was on my way out. I was 85 to 88 when I was a student.
0: Oh, I started in the fall of eighty-nine, so I just missed.
3: Okay, okay, all yeah, right.
0: miss, miss seeking.
3: But a lot of those same cats were on the faculty, you know. I mean, I know, I know, I didn't ever study with Mark, and but you know, there's always the legends of all those. Folks.
0: Oh, I've got some stories that we'll will 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 tell off air. <laughs> Mark and Wayne Clifton, and Wayne Clifton is an important part of my story as well because he was the the classical guitar teacher at that time. And then he retired, and so after years of not having classical guitar courses, I was I you know I approached Larry and said, hey, could, could I teach a classical guitar class, you know? And so they they um, took that ensemble which had been kind of left dormant for for many years, and they, they brought it back, and so that was the kind of this, you know the re the big rebirth of of kind of that classical guitar program at at the college because they didn't have anything prior to that.
2: So David, that was kind of my next question. It was about um, as you came and you'd started to develop as a faculty member, and parallel to that, you're developing your own playing and musicianship. you know what were some of the things that you started to work on and get excited about that you wanted to bring over into the curriculum and like because you do quite a bit of well, different... I think
0: I mean, I think that's something we all do as faculty, and that's the great thing about this department is that you know, if you do have this new area of interest or a specialization or something, you know, um, you know, the administration, you and Cheryl and, and Larry and Rick in the past and have have been so open to just letting us, you know, develop that into a course and, and just put it into the curriculum. And it's just, it's great. I mean, the, the amount of you know, concepts and styles and techniques that people can study in this department is just, it's, you know, an amazing testament to, you know, the history of the department and what it has to offer. And so that definitely happened with me. It happened early on with, you know, that, you know, wanting to bring the classical guitar, you know, program back online, you know, and, uh, and then more recently with the flamenco course that I, uh, that I developed, it's, it's turned into a really great course i've you know had you know all kinds of students you know take that class from you know strict classical players like drew is taken that class now and amazing classical player you know just you know but it's a new concept for him to 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 try these flamenco uh concepts you know and then uh, you know it'll be like songwriters as well you know electric guitar players out just really are interested in the in the style. So that's been that's been really exciting. And so it certainly uh, has been a big part of, uh, you know, my history at Berkeley is just my own areas of interest becoming something that I teach both in private lessons and, and within the curriculum. So.
2: Yeah, that's great. Um, hey Cheryl, what's on your mind right
0: now? <laughs> so she always asks that with such I do. Like,
3: I know, but you're gonna mystery ask a question. I'm curious about your fingernails. If I was gonna take your class. What am I gonna do?
0: <laughs> yeah, it could be done. I mean, my, what usually what I say is, you know, it's not an it's not necessary. There are certainly plenty of great classical players that play with flesh, you know, and don't use snails. Um, but it just offers a lot more tonal options, you know, and certainly for a flamenco, a lot more kind of dynamic, you know, options if you do have the nails. But it's not—it's not necessary, you know. It's not a requirement. But
3: and I have a question. I'm going to show my ignorance here. Actually, it's this hand that I need to grow the nails on, or do like Kim, <laughs> that I glue on my fingernails. Yeah, yeah. Or- I always tell
0: about Kim's. <laughs> ping pong balls. I don't know if I ever told you my ping pong ball story. No, I I worked with this singer once, uh, a soprano, and we did the Defia songs, you know, and, uh, and at the beginning of the rehearsals, I had told her about the ping pong ball. So after the concert, she gave me a little gift bag. And I, you know, it had some nice little things in there. And at the bottom were these golf balls. And I'm like, I'm like, Jenny, why? Why did you get me golf balls? And she said, "For your nails." And I said, "Not golf balls, ping pong balls. <laughs> what do you want to do with golf balls?"
2: I <laughs> would be like you could make some percussive sounds yeah. with them. That, that's yeah. funny. That's
0: that was really great. Fun, so. That's
2: really
3: anyway, funny.
0: Cheryl. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to.
2: Oh uh,
3: no! Get no distracted. no in, in flamenco, I mean, I I just took such you know very basics of classical guitar as a teenager, and then for a minute, I. There was a classical, I lived in Baltimore near Peabody and I went to see this and I just was like, okay, I got to do that. And then I saw that I would have, the way I wanted to do it, just the way I, my mind works is I would just have to work so hard, you know, like I was so dedicated to try to work on picking, right? Just with a pick. So I said, oh, you know, it's kind of like all or nothing, but it it's true, like you use your, actually use your pinky in flamenco, but not in classical, right? Correct. So you use that as it, when you uh,
0: just the- for strumming. Yeah. Just chart. in the Rusciato stuff. So okay. you know, just that stroke in that way. So, and that's what I tell the students is that, you know, the thing, even if you're an amazing finger style player, you never do this. It's always this it's like, you know, only going to the gym and, and doing you know, pull-ups and never doing, you know, anything where you push out, you know. So it's really uh, learning that technique. And, yeah, the pinky is used, but it's only in that kind of raschiato kind of uh, approach where you're playing out and strumming down.
2: What's really nice about it, though, I I found just from doing it in a basic way was when you do that, when you strengthen your extensor muscles like that, it mm-hmm. really does help your flexion. Oh, Yeah. It, it really totally strengthens scales.
0: your hand, yeah. Make sure Everything Peugeot's gets improved. Faster.
2: Yep, mm-hmm. it's really great. And it's stop. funny.
0: Yeah, I tell the students, you know, you just have to do this all the time, and they'll they'll come in and they'll tell me, yeah, I I sat in my class and I played on a book for the whole class, you know, or you know, I I do I play on my lap, you know, or you know, I play on the dashboard of my car, you know. It's just like, well, that's what you have to do. It's just developing the muscles, so you gain that strength. But yeah, it, it'll you know, inversely really help and improve your, your, you know, your normal kind of finger style technique.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, even for, I always did it. I had a teacher that showed me that even for mm-hmm. all the arpeggios and the patterns, the classical stuff, mm-hmm. the coming in and the tremolo, right. you know, everything. Well, I you. use
0: the, um, I use the Isnaola mm-hmm. technique book and, you know, even in his book, he has that just as an exercise. I remember yep. showing that to, um, to Grisha and he's like this is not flamenco I said I know I know but it's you know it's basically just a, a book on mechanics you know
2: right and all off the guitar like all that stuff off the guitar just so that you get mm-hmm. it you get the muscles going and then
0: exactly.
2: it gets in there it's like running mm-hmm. or walking or driving it's, it's in your muscle memory that's really cool David that's cool. yeah 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 it really shows like you know in the way that we do the curriculum in the guitar department that you can take something like flamenco and you can really get into it and learn it in a lab, but then the benefits of it really, they are that thing, but then they also exceed that thing. And they, they, you know, you'll find all these benefits maybe you didn't see in other areas.
0: Right. Right. And I mean, I teach that course, you know, g- going back to what Cheryl said, I teach that course, like, this is just, you know, uh, an introduction to this, you know, this music and the, and these techniques mm-hmm you know 99.9% of the students are not going to become flamenco players you know but they're going to basically take that put it in their toolbox and figure out other ways that it it could maybe benefit them or become part of their writing or their playing you know and and so we'll look at like some of the solo acoustic players there's a lot of those candy rap players that use amazing techniques in both hands and some of that is raschiato so even if it's just like okay i'm going to compose and use this technique or i'm going to try to play you know this song by daniel padim or one of those other other artists that use those techniques it's like now you'll have a better basis for you know what's happening mechanically and not just like flailing your hands (laughs) hoping that you (laughs) get it right you know
2: so david what about all this stuff? Are there things that you developed as a teacher, like seeing needs and seeing opportunities for things that influenced the things you're working on as a player? And I'm asking because I just feel like you're a very excited player. Like you're always into something. I, I follow you Excitable on Facebook. Excitable are Yeah. You're like, <laughs> you know, like you, you you play jazz guitar. You're in several different ensembles that you lead in different styles. Um, you have extended range, like you bring in these guitars with 10 strings and eight strings and seven <laughs> strings. And I think we said it one time That's not- you have more <laughs> strings than any other person in the guitar department in your home. And, um, but I think it's really cool that, um, your professional life as a performer is very stylistically diverse. And yet I'm sure and you find all the connection points in yourself in your practicing. Well,
0: school. I mean, I joke that I'm a Gemini so that it's kind of like, you know, the whole idea of doing both nylon strings and electric guitar. Mm-hmm. It's, I consider it kind of unique. I mean, I don't think mm-hmm. there are that many players that feel like they have, you know, two feet in both worlds. Um, So, um so, but they're very different, you know, I mean, I feel like the, the nylon, World, it's it's a lot about the technique and studying, you know, to to maintain a high level of proficiency on the technique. And in the electric world, it's it's much more about the concepts, you know. So you know, um, like Julian teaches a course on you know applying the proficiency material to to real life music. And that's really what I try to do with with students. And then like you said, that carries over into the way that I approach things like, okay, let's really learn your melodic minor modes. Let's learn, you know, chord substitution from that scale. And let's apply it to a tune. Let's play Stella by Starlight and play only, you know, major seven sharp five chords, you know, And so now all of a sudden, it's like, okay, I have to know melodic minor, I have to know the harmony of melodic minor, and now I have to be able to like, apply it to an actual song, and do it in a very specific way, a very kind of like, you know, limited parameter type of way, you know, and so that's, you know, what I what I f- find myself working on, and then how I convey those ideas to students, you know, to, to, to try to develop those points and get them to the place where they feel like they understand and can play it and can make music out of it.
2: So, Ian, this kind of sounds like the right time for you to jump in and ask your question or whatever is on your mind.
1: Yeah, uh, so here's something we ask everybody who comes on to Coffee Talk, which is what's something that students, uh, like like a question that they should ask or something that they should be thinking about that they might not think to even ask, like something that might not even be on their radar that they should be aware of?
0: Hmm. That's a good question. I wish I had had this one in advance. <laughs> What should they ask that they don't even think about? I don't know. That's it's hard for me to answer off the top of my head. Um, but I guess, you know, one thing I noticed, like teaching, I, have, I had uh, probably half a dozen first semester students on Monday, you know. And, man, some of them were incredible players, you know. But it... The nature of learning guitar these days is so different than when we were coming up, you know, I mean, I had a chance to study with a great teacher and learn concepts and, you know, interact and they learn from videos, you know, and uh, so those questions that I asked them were all about, do you understand what you're actually playing, you know? So I guess the question that I would say is, you know, help me understand what I'm doing, you know, help me get into what's actually happening within the music, you know? So, I mean, I saw somebody play a great version of Black Orpheus that they learned from Louis Bonfa, and then somebody else played, uh, um, I think, an arrangement of Don't Know Why, you know, Um, or some other, you know, Pat Metheny arrangement, you know? And then I'd said, okay, well, let's play the song. And they, they were like, what do you mean? <laughs> it's like, well, let's play Black Orpheus. You play the chords, I'll play the melody, or you play the melody, I'll play the chords. And they, you know, they weren't able to do that. So it's just, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard. Obviously we haven't been able to play with other musicians, but I think just in general, people are so tuned into, you know, working on this one thing that maybe they kind of miss the bigger picture. Like, and it, it happened to me too, you know? I remember working on Bill Levitt's arrangement of Fly Me to the Moon, you know, like in my first or second semester. And and I think that summer after my first year, I was at a family gathering and I was playing that arrangement. All of a sudden, my my uncle started singing. I'm like, wait a minute, how do you know that song? And he's like, what do you mean? It's Frank Sinatra. everybody knows that song, you know? <laughs> And it was a real lesson for me at that moment. Like, I I don't know this song. I know the arrangement, you know. Um, But so it really, um, again, influences the way that I teach, you know, especially with, because I see so many solo, like, fingerstyle players, you know, I want them to go beyond just kind of the notes, you know, and have a, a bigger understanding of the composition and what makes up, you know, the melody and the harmony and how it all fits together, and then how to do it, you know, themselves, ultimately, you know, I had a student this morning, one of my online students say, you know, I have 10 chord solos, I know, he said, so at a minute and a half, I have about 15 minutes of repertoire. And I'm like, Yeah, right, you know, and, uh, and so I said, Okay, so let's work on just learning how to be a solo player, you know, take those songs, right, take, you know, Prelude to a Kiss by, you know, William Levitt's arrangement. And let's work on the Duke, Duke Ellington song. And then maybe we can improvise a chord solo for a couple choruses. And now you have five minutes. And now your 10 songs are a whole set of solo playing, you know, And so I think that's the one area just, you know, and I, again, it's not so much a question, Ian, it's just, I, you know, I want students to kind of like look at the bigger picture of, you know, what's, what makes up these, uh, these different, you know, transcriptions that they're working on and, and how they can be basically get to the point where they can do that. How could I do that? That's the answer to the question. That's the question they should ask. How can I do this?
1: <laughs> I'm really, I'm really uh, taken by uh, something you mentioned when you said, you know, they're not learning necessarily the a lot of the ways that we used to. Um, now they're learning through videos, and I think it's an interesting development. When there was a generational thing, uh, when people started learning from records, right? And, you know, before when somebody would learn from somebody in their community or from somebody that they knew and they just started picking things up from records. And then you had all these self taught musicians who were playing cool things, you know. And well, I you know, think that I'm-
0: always existed. I don't know. Maybe Cheryl can talk to this too. Um, I mean, you know, I feel like people have always kind of learned from records, you know, maybe even before the community thing, you know. <laughs> But I don't know. Maybe just because so much of the video is like tutorials, you know, it's like people teaching, and maybe they're not as credentialed as you know (laughs) some of the folks in the Berkeley guitar department, or you know, um, or maybe have different ideas about how to approach things and, and, and learning things. So
3: yeah, well, I think there's always that thing, you know, that sometimes they call the guitar the people's instrument. There's a there's an accessibility to it that invites everyone in to a certain level maybe a superficial level or hey I can you know yeah I can play this as I learned it but that the thing that we're doing and what you're doing is now let's take that deeper and also you know just the history some some maybe you know people get caught up in if they're a younger person maybe thinking all that's happening is happening right now. When you're talking about well, yeah, we'll do Gellington, or we go back to Bach, you know, or we go back to, you know, the Renaissance or what, you know, whatever. I mean, there's a whole history of music that you need to sink your teeth into. So I guess you know, on one level, there are lots of people out there that can play the play the guitar and right. it's fine, you know, like playing that arrangement just as you learned it. But to go deeper is is the challenge in having someone like you there to guide a student in there and see how, wow, how many dimensions there are to to anything, any piece of scale, a chord, a piece, you know, a piece that you're working on.
0: Right, right. And maybe going back to Kim's original question about the, you know, kind of first days, I think that's something that's really changed, you know, through my tenure at Berkeley is just, you know, I remember like, teaching really high level students early on and being like so insecure like what am i going to show this person they sound so amazing you know and sometimes jim kelly would do like go off to italy and do the umbria jazz festival and i would sub for him and he had like all the really high level students that had heard him at italy you know festivals and come to berkeley to study with him you know and i always felt insecure and and now i i feel like because of the way that I approach things, I, I feel like I could show anybody something or make some comment or maybe highlight one thing that they hadn't thought about, you know? And so that's kind of what I try to do. If I'm listening to somebody for the first time, I'm trying to find that place where maybe they're not thinking about something in a certain way or maybe they're, you know, it could be a technical thing, you know? Um, but I, I never feel like that insecurity anymore. I feel like, you know, no matter who it was, you know, if Pat Metheny came in, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, you could work on that squeak. Your sound is kind of noisy. You know, (laughs) I joke, I joke. I'm just, uh...
2: I think that's true though. And I think in some ways, the more experienced you are, the more you realize you do want to learn from people about different things. You know, it always strikes me, like you meet people who you idolized and, and they're like, Hey, what do you do? Oh, Oh, you do that. Okay listen, you play, class, I have a problem with this finger. And like, how do you get that tone to be fatter? And because we're all trying to get better all the time. Right.
0: Right. Well, I heard right? you talking about, you know, your conversation with Jimmy page. I mean, yeah, it's like, that's, that's right. just amazing. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's right.
2: Like he, he was so thrilled. He was like, Oh, I can't, I'm so glad to meet you. Listen, my a fingers giving me a hard time and mm-hmm. like, how do I get that melody to come out? And this is all, and you know, we're playing guitar in our arm cause we're at this dinner thing and you know, and it was so great. Right. You know, um, and of course, like it was funny because it was a piece that he wrote, a piece of music that he wrote that made me have to study classical guitar so that I could learn to bring out that melody better. And then, you know, all these years later, I'm with him at a dinner, okay. like telling him, you know, no, 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 work on your A finger. That's gonna be the way to go. You know, <laughs> uh, it was I really know. good. It's you know, it's so fun. And I, you know, dude, I was talking to an uh, incoming student today. And we were talking about the proficiency materials, right? And he was asking me what they are, you know, all of the vocabulary that everyone goes through every semester at Berkeley and you get tested on it. And it's basically your modes and your triads and your four part chords and arpeggios. And and I was telling him, well, you know, all the styles of music that you love, all these different styles are made of the same stuff. And so if you know all these materials really deeply And then you pick the styles you love, and and as you and Cheryl were saying, you get really into like, what makes that authentic? What makes blues sound like blues? What makes this kind of blues sound like itself versus this other style? It's all the way you use the stuff. And so Mm -hmm. if you already know the stuff, then it's like, oh, well, I'm really just studying the authenticities and the nuances and the history, but I've got all my modes in hand. I've got all my dreads, I know where I am on the fretboard And, you know, most of what you're talking about, which we've all experienced, is when you run into a wall. it's because you don't know the materials. You only know them in a certain context. You can't take them out of context and use them somewhere else.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. I remember there was a recent post on Facebook, you know, about the proficiency materials. I forget it was like the cycles or something like that. And people started like piling on and complaining. I'm like. All of that stuff is just learning your instrument, you know, why would you not want to learn the instrument in any way, you know, all different, you know, you know, ideas and uh, concepts, but just learn the instrument so there are no limitations and I feel like that's what this curriculum does, you know, eight semesters of this curriculum, there's no, you know, gaps in terms of what you should be able to do because all that knowledge is there that foundation is there you know
2: yeah that's fun it's a funny thing to complain about too like voice leading like oh i don't want to learn how to voice lead on the (laughs) instrument like there that's if there's one thing that all styles make you do if you cannot voice lead well you will not be successful that would be the one thing
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know? I've come, you know, it's something I, I talk about all the time. This morning, I was teaching a, 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 a lesson to a student that's doing a Paco transcription, you know, and he was asking about ideas for, for improvising. And I was like, well, let's start by voice leading these chords. Cause a lot of times mm-hmm. the improv might start with like an arpeggio of a, of a chord, you know, and then a scale run and things like that. So it, it came up like right away, you know, and the fact that this was a good student, he was able to do it instantly and then the concept made perfect sense to him you know Mm But for somebody that says, I don't want to voice lead, it's just like,
2: <laughs> well, you know, and I don't want to sound like I'm making fun of it because I'm not, because I think sometimes when people say, I don't want to do something, it's because it's really hard and they're right. afraid, they, they just get frustrated with it. And they're afraid like, oh my gosh, there's this thing I can't do. What does it right. say I about think, me?
0: Right. And as, as teachers, if we can show them how it can be used, you know, what is the application of this information? So again, that's where I think knowing the individuals. Mm-hmm student is really important as well find an example in the music that they like or the music that they play or a song that they wrote I had a student this uh past spring who was a songwriter and that's all we did was just kind of work on his songs you know and so every lesson it was just trying to show him concepts you know why don't you learn these concepts you know because look you could do this in your song you know and you know it was funny because um He was a brilliant songwriter, but he was kind of one of those students that's like, you know, why do I need to do this, you know? But I feel like in a small way, I was able to kind of like push him in that in that direction, you know? Yeah. uh, mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's important for people to know, too. You're not supposed to know everything about the guitar like you'll never know everything. You know, there's so many things that when I look at those proficiencies, I'm like, I wish I was more familiar with this aspect of it. It just doesn't come up in a lot of the music I play. So when I want to go back to it, it does feel like I'm in the dark forest again, you know, (laughs) and it's okay. I mean, it's kind of supposed to be like that. And it is uncomfortable, which is also okay. I think that is a new idea for, for people when they come to music school, they feel like, Oh, the guitar is my refuge. The guitar is my voice. It should always feel comfortable and free and beautiful. But in reality, it's always going to feel uncomfortable and it's always going to feel like a challenge. And that can be some really hard days, like for all of us. And so I think like that kind of impetus that people have, like, I hate these cycles. I don't want to do this. It's because it makes you feel uncomfortable and Honestly, it's supposed to right? because you're growing and then, but when you move through that, as you move through that, you're going to learn all these beautiful things that will come into your playing in a, in a really beautiful way. But, but I think it's important for people to come to terms with that idea that, that the discomfort doesn't go away and that's okay.
0: Yeah. And I think as a teacher, what I try to do is find that perfect balance between comfort and support mm-hmm. and that feeling of, of not being comfortable. You know by pointing out things that maybe they're they're overlooking or haven't thought of so you know get people to feel good about what they're doing and then bam okay now what about this and then mm. you know and then give them that challenge and see if they're able to to you know overcome those deficiencies or you know look at things in a slightly different way that might help influence you know the end result
2: cheryl how do you approach that that idea of discomfort and you know approaching things that seem really challenging on the fretboard
3: wow I don't that's a good question I'd have to think about that you know I mean with different students or with myself
2: I guess both I mean just <laughs> with that overall idea I was gonna ask Ian too just with that I I think it's important for people to hear us talk about honestly like that's just a reality of life on the guitar. You know, I mean, I think sometimes with the proficiencies you come up for the first time to all this data that you're unfamiliar with and it feels wrong because you feel like you should know about your own instrument and maybe it's like not important if you don't feel comfortable with it. But in reality, I think then you get to this point where you realize it, there's always going to be something.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, um, I always have a, a list. I mean, and it could be actually a real list of things or just a list in my head of things that I can't do well and I want to do well. So that's what I'm work on in my technical parts of my practice time and really slow, like total slow motion. And then maybe I take that and apply it to a tune so that I have a practical application and and I am could be chipping away at that for a long time till it comes out even just a little bit cleaner or better or faster but it's sort of like getting down into the weeds with it slow motion and so I mean that's what I often suggest to my students is find those things that really intrigue you but you can't really play them yet there might be just a challenge to it and just keep a running list of those things. Cause the list keep, it, it never stops. I mean, <laughs> it's not like you, you, you're done with the list, you know?
2: What about you, Anne?
1: Yeah. I was going to say the same, like a lot of the same thing, like the metronome, you know, like, because it's so, I don't know, like when you're playing something that is, that fits well on your hand, you know, if you're like in a particular part of a tune, you know, like, personally like i was trying to play i was trying to um blow over if i were a bell yesterday and just something about starting on the g7 it just never seemed right to me you know what i mean it like something about those changes it just didn't seem like when i'm actually doing it and trying to voice lead it you know the correct way, it, it just didn't really sit well with me. So I had to take it just really slow with the metronome. And like, I guess uh, in terms of approaching it, like in bringing it up and then really nailing something, like if there's a passage or something that you have to start really slow and it's just like pulling teeth and it's very difficult and, you know, uh, like destroying your ego as you're, you know, not sounding good at all when you feel like you should sound a lot better. And then when you're, you're ticking it up with the metronome and then all of a sudden you've got some, you've got some fluency on it. It really feels good. But then of course, then the next day it's something else, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, both, both of you kind of expressed uh, a phrase that I use uh, with students, which is um, uh, practicing improvisation, you know, and I always, Uh, equate it with like a George Carlin type phrase, like, you know, jumbo shrimp or military intelligence or something, you know, practicing improvisation. Wait a minute, improvisation is supposed to be spontaneous. It's supposed to be, you know, play whatever I feel, you know. But, you you know, uh, we obviously know that that's not the case, you know, that it's just a lot of working out things and, and breaking it down and having strategies like you expressed. And that's a big part of what I what I try to encourage as well, you know, taking things at slower tempos. I mean, today, with that flamenco student, um, it was this progression where, you know, there's a harmonic minor chord that lasts like two beats, you know. So it's like, you can't just jump into that without setting it up. So I said, you know, let's make it eight measures. And then break it down to four and two, and then one and then two beats, you know, so having that strategy, and I remember doing that once with the Mick Goodrick tune I was working on that was like this crazy tune. And it was like, summer band camp, and it had like two measures of all these like unrelated chords, I think the song was based on a tone row or something, a 12 tone row. And uh, so I remember it was two measures per chord. And I remember taking it recording it. So I had two minutes per chord, you know, and then gradually brought it down to the to the to the actual song, you know, so I think that's, that's important in terms of understanding concepts, but then how to get to the place where you need to be, you know. So
2: Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, can I, I you, can I make go ahead. up? Sorry? Go go ahead. Ahead. Sure. Yeah, no, uh, there's,
1: there's just a one connection that I want to make between what you're talking about right now and the teaching and that is this like okay i took your class and i i had a i had a shtick for certain ways of holding the guitar that i would teach to students mm-hmm. and it was like a whole spiel about holding a sandwich you know and you can't put your thumb and then like for the pick it's like <laughs> you know it's like you're playing thumb war and then you put the pick you know it was like a whole thing that i had mm-hmm. and what i'm curious about is like you know, it's a lot like practicing improvisation where you have the licks, right? And I'm curious about like, in terms of teaching, like what it feels like to, to like have so much of that vocabulary to where you really are improvising with, like,
0: with a student. You mean in terms of the actual pedagogy, like the teaching? Yeah, I
1: mean, just Mm -hmm. like teaching, because I mean, like you talk about, you know, just breaking apart a simple thing, like brushing your teeth, you know, you really have to like have a a system laid out ahead of time, but then all of a sudden, how do you know, like, you know, both in terms of your own playing, but also the ability to improvise with a student and whatever might issues they might have.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so much of that to me is just based on experience, you know, just, you know, having done it as often, having to react, and then, like I said at the very beginning, too, just kind of analyzing each lesson and how it went, you know? I mean, there are definitely things I've said or done at the end of a lesson where I'm like, you know, I could have done that differently, you know? I think that's, I mean, the same way at the end of the gig where you think like, yeah, it went pretty good, except for that one tune, you know? I actually did a gig last night, you know, and I'm still thinking about this one tune. I just didn't count it off right, you know, and it just, ah, you know? tune i really like to play and know well and i just because i didn't count it off right it just didn't go the way that i had hoped you know but uh but you just learn from that next time i'll be much more focused and on all right it's a fast tempo there's a bass pedal let's get this right before we you know start playing you know so it's just you learn from from those things but you know I, What I have realized, I only learn from those things if I really do analyze it, you know, though, again, the Monday morning quarterback thing, I use that analogy all the time. It's like, you know, Sunday, you play the game, Monday, you go and you watch film, you know, and you look at all the things that didn't go well, you know, as well as the things that did go well. And then you try to learn from those, you know, so that's kind of the way that I've tried to, you know, improve my my teaching is, you know, and certainly I do that with with my playing as well.
2: That's great. Cheryl, what's on your mind as we're kind of coming to the end of the coffee run today?
3: Oh, this was really great, David. You, you shared so many just great things about teaching and learning. And you answered my question about the right-hand technique in flamenco. <laughs>
0: and, and, and my nails.
3: <laughs> and the nails. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, thank you for, for. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here that I'm going to go back and listen to and think about and just, yeah, also just what you were saying there also about just by doing it, you get better. You only get, you can only get good at things that you do. So whether that's improvising or, you know, playing the pieces or being a teacher, the right. more you do it, you get better and your sight reading people say, I'm a terrible sight reading I'm like, sight reader. I'm like, well, what? How many times? What did you practice today? Yet? No, no, no. I'm like well, every right, day. Right, right. You, know, you, you only get good at what you do. So,
0: right, right. And uh, inspiration is such a big part of it too. I mean, I feel so fortunate being a part of this department because I'm inspired by you know the amazing faculty uh, like yourselves and and the students. You know, they just make me want to be a better teacher because they're so hungry to learn. I can't believe like these, you know, first semester students and the way they come in, I mean, maybe that'll get, (laughs) you know, tempered a little bit as they get closer to midterms and finals, but but right now, they're just like a sponge, you know, ready to soak up anything that you give them, you know, and that's inspiring. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'll give you whatever I can, you know, to make you, you know, not only a better guitar player, but but a better student and a better person, you know, in the big picture of things.
2: That's really good. That's a really good thought. Um, Ian, do you have anything that's left on your mind here?
1: No, I just really appreciate the way that, you know, you talk Mm -hmm. about, it almost sounds like, you know, your pedagogy and your Mm -hmm. organizational skills and practice throughout your instrument is exactly how you approach teaching. And I, I think that's just really. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: didn't talk about like the eight string and the 10 string, but you know, I mean, there aren't, there there are, aren't a lot of like eight string guitar methods or 10 string guitar transcriptions you know so in deciding to kind of tackle those instruments i kind of had to teach myself you know so that organization helped you know where i would create exercises for the 10 string or i would transcribe you know something for the eight string you know take a take the bach cello suites and let's learn those on the eight string because that's going to help me not only you know, learn the mechanics of playing this instrument, but learn, you know, teach me to be a better musician as I try to interpret this music, you know, so, you know, I try to, I try to be as organized as possible in, in, in those types of approaches. And and hopefully that carries over into the way that I teach as well.
2: That's beautiful. Um, Thanks, David, for being with yeah, us. Yeah, thanks today. for inviting
0: me. I didn't. Yeah. You'd never ask what was in the cup, you know. I, I didn't get to talk about
2: no. you the fact that
0: I'm a tea drinker, you know.
2: You did <laughs> mention that you had switched to tea. Yes, um, yes. But yes. do you do you want to tell them what kind of tea you got in there?
0: Sure, sure. So I do my own uh, blend. I have um, oh uh, my own blend. Yeah, I have a whole little setup. I you know it's kind of off limits to everyone in the family. Don't get near my my uh, my tea corner, you know. Um, so, uh, I have a Breville coffee, uh, tea maker, you know, and, um, I do have my own blend. It's, um, Earl gray, English breakfast and Scottish breakfast.
2: So, you know, it's really funny because we keep saying that the way people approach their coffee and the way people approach their tea says a lot about the way they approach their music. And the fact that you have taken three different,
0: different it was only two for a long, long time. And then you I see- did a. See? I did a gig uh, a couple summers ago. I played in uh, Isleboro, Maine, this beautiful, beautiful, like, island uh, right off the coast of uh, mid-coast Maine. And uh, um, there's no hotels or anything on the island, so we stayed with a host family overnight. And uh, and she served a blend with Scottish breakfast tea. And I had never tried Scottish breakfast tea before, and it was so good, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh I, I instantly changed my, uh, my drinking habits, so now it's uh, English, Scottish, and, and Earl Grey.
2: See, everyone, if you reflect on everything David has taught us today about <laughs> teaching and stylistic development and practicing and performing, it makes a lot of sense that this, is, this plays into the way you, uh, you approach your tea.
0: Yeah. And we can all change. We can we don't have to be stuck. You know, I remember taking my son to a diner in Manchester, New Hampshire once when he was really little and we sat at the counter and the waitress came by and looked at this customer and said, Hey, Jim, you want the usual? And Wesley looked at me and he said, Dad, what's the usual? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, then he became a usual kind of person after that. So now... But, but I think it's good to change, you know, I think it's good. And that's something I've tried to do, you know, with my music and, you know, with my teaching is just, you know, be open to change and try new things. And I like that challenge. I mean, I I feel like, you know, at every possible turn, I've tried to take on a new challenge. It's like, oh, I like the mandolin. I'll, I think I'm going to study the mandolin, you know? And actually (laughs) yesterday I took a, I took a ukulele lesson. So. (laughs) Yeah, I had uh, Krissa Hoffman. She just graduated, and she was in my teaching class. And I said, I really want a ukulele lesson, so I had a ukulele lesson. I know she was your student. Was was Karen? That's such a cool, like circle of life kind of thing. Yes, her teacher was Karen, and Karen was my teacher when she was, I mean, my student when she was at Berkeley.
2: That is so cool. And she taught
0: national guitar workshop. It's like all this, uh, you know.
2: That's awesome. Um, yeah, I want to mention world. before we sign off that you mentioned Toki earlier, and mm-hmm. that's Toki Wright for all of you who are listening. He's the chair of Pro Music, and so um, you can look up uh, Toki and that great major that David teaches the class for. So
0: yeah, and I should have videotaped because then you could have had Toki Wright teaching how to how to brush your teeth. <laughs>
2: Well, you can ask him now when you go in for your meeting about pro music because he's got it down. He's got the lesson plan down. <laughs> That's
0: pretty good. Um, no, he's he's great, and he's done he's some amazing stuff for the um, pro music department, which I also teach mm. in. So Cool. Mm-hmm. Well,
2: thank you, David. Cheers to you. Thank coffee. you, everyone. Thank you, thank you, Cheryl. Thank
0: you, Cheryl. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Kim.
2: Thank you, David. And we'll uh, be with you next time on the next Coffee Talk. Bye, everybody.